0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am your co-host, Mike Pearson. Joining me, the ever-enthusiastic Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you?
1: Thank you. That was a great introduction.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Are You, uh, you were up late last night. You were uh, partying pretty hard, I hear. <laughs>
1: yeah, something like that. Uh, I was visiting with... Natalie Nessence, who's been on one of our podcasts before, but she was back in Iowa making a little short mini trip home, and so I thought I'd go up and see her, and we just stayed up way later than we anticipated.
0: That happens. You get to chatting, and then before you know it, the time has flown by.
1: And having a little wine and eating, and yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's good. You know, enjoy these times while you can, Delaney, because now you've entered the world of adulthood. And the ability to stay up till midnight uh, is going to quickly fall away from you. Pretty soon you'll be so saddled with responsibility.
1: It's not like college college where I could stay up, go out really late the night before and still make it to an 8 a.m. and be fine.
0: Right. No, this is is a period where hangovers are going to hurt like heck and uh, you're just not going to have much energy the day after
1: yeah 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 I think that's what I'm I'm not hung over by any means but I think I was tired and get I only got like six hours of sleep
0: yeah yeah you're a grown up now you're gonna need at least eight and you'll never get it you're just gonna be miserable forever <laughs> I know all right know. Delaney, speaking of miserable forever is there anything coming out of Washington <laughs> DC that's positive
1: that was quite the segue wasn't that? Um, yeah. but a couple yeah that was I, I'm impressed Anyways, there's a few senators that have come together now from the Upper Chamber Ag Appropriations Committee, and they're saying there is no way that this budget, $18 billion cut, is going to be possible for fiscal year 2017. They say it's just way too late in the fiscal year already to try and cut that much money, so, I mean, they are going to have to slash some discretionary funding, but... The numbers that President Trump proposed I do not think are going to be accepted.
0: Okay, so it still sounds like that budget is dead on arrival. They're, they're talking about it, but they're yes, not going to follow say.
1: it. Yeah, and I think that there will still be some programs and things that will have drastic cuts made to them, but hopefully USDA and some of the other agriculturally related funds aren't going to be some of the major ones cut.
0: Okay, gotcha. Well, you know, talking of, of cutting the budget, talking about the budget, one of the things that Congress has talked about doing, like they talked about health care, we'll see if this happens, but they want to lower the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 20%. Now, in order to do that, they've proposed a couple of different things. One of them, they're calling the border adjustment tax. Essentially, it's a tariff. Basically, things coming across the border are going to be taxed at, x percent and i don't think we have a percentage out there but uh, i thought this was interesting john deere's ceo samuel allen said that Deere and company would actually benefit from a tax like that because they are a significant net exporter however he doesn't support it Uh, the company isn't supporting this border adjustment tax because if we start putting potentially tariffs on our border he says quote as a result of the adjustment tax, it had an unintended consequence of causing countries like China and Mexico to buy their ag commodities from other countries. That would be negative for U.S. farmers who do a lot of exporting to China, Canada, and Mexico. And uh, that's a fear that I think we've heard throughout the ag industry since this tax border, uh, yeah, I almost call it a tariff, this border adjustment tax was proposed. And uh, Delaney, you know, that's one of those fears we've heard talked about in the ag industry since this tax was first proposed, you know.
1: Yeah, it has been. And so is that is that a tariff or a tax proposed The U.S. proposed it?
0: Yes, it's one of those things that I don't remember if it was Paul. I think it's Paul Ryan's proposal. Basically, if we want to do tax reform and lower the corporate rate, we got to find a a way to raise money elsewhere. This one, it was sold to Trump as, okay, we'll we'll punish people who are importing stuff made outside the country. Mm. But the catch is those countries could punish us with additional tariffs as well.
1: Yes, that is always a concern, I think, when treating with other countries and dealing with those tariffs and taxes.
0: Right. You know, how can you how can you find a balancing point? Is there a balancing point? And maybe Mm -hmm. there's not.
1: And I think part of the well, I guess on both sides of it, part of the concern and also the promise of having one of the huge trade agreements like TPP was ensuring that those products would be set tariffs that wouldn't be able to affect the tariffs that we set for countries and then the tariff that they set for us to import to their countries.
0: Right, it would have put a put a blueprint out there or a roadmap right. as to what those would right. look like. Mm-hmm. But uh, you've got some other news dealing with other countries, don't you, Delaney?
1: Yes, so it, it's been in the news quite a bit lately, but the dairy industry has had some pretty um, low market prices with milk three-class futures and milk prices that they've been receiving, and so I think part of that is dealing also with The trade negotiation or the renegotiation of NAFTA. And so on Monday, a processor in Wisconsin, it's called Grassland Dairy Products, they apparently sent out, I think, close to 100 reports to producers saying, at the end of this month, we are not going to accept your milk anymore or your cream and just leaving them to hang dry. Because Canada said we can't accept this product anymore or won't. I guess it doesn't say the reason why, but it was the equivalence of 1 million pounds of milk per day. So those farms, those dairy farms in Wisconsin are going to be hurting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder wonder what other processors are available up in that area. I know Wisconsin has plenty of or has quite a bit of processor capacity. I wonder if anybody's close by.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. I think Canada was a large market, and and has been a large market for dairy, so it's a little scary with the possibility of renegotiations of NAFTA that they might not want to uh, accept or trade milk anymore.
0: Yeah, and Canada's, their dairy industry is very well protected. Uh, They've got quite a system of, uh, I believe they still use the quota system, and... You know, mm-hmm. so it's there's always been a bit of conflict there between U.S. producers and Canadian dairy producers, and how milk is treated.
1: Right, right.
0: You know, speaking of uh, international trade, we do have some good news on the international trade front. The U.S. Grains Council announced that uh, Malaysia is is now just receiving a an arrival of sixty eight thousand one hundred metric tons. Basically, it's two point six million bushels. And uh, it's the second shipment they've received from the U.S. following a five-year purchasing hiatus. So this is only the second load to go into Malaysia in the past five years. And um, they look like they could be a growing opportunity for U.S. grain exports. You know, they were kind of shaken when uh, Brazil's corn crop failed at the tail end of last year's growing season. They went looking for somewhere else and they realized that, hey, we've got pretty good corn here in the U.S. and they're going to buy some of it to feed their chickens because here's an interesting fact about malaysia malaysians eat a lot of chicken they eat upwards of 110 pounds of chicken per year per person Hmm. that's a lot of wings
1: now does it specify whether or not the corn has to be non-gmo gmo GMO, or does it say anything about that
0: it doesn't i believe it's just conventional corn probably probably the bulk of it traded yeah there's no premiums for organic or anything it looks okay. like it's just conventional u.s. corn okay yellow number two um let's see so this is their total they this year they've imported 6.38 million bushels not a whole lot you know in the big scheme of things but hey anybody eating any of it is a good thing
1: definitely a def- good thing for u.s producers
0: right exactly and uh, get those chickens fat and happy and get those malaysians uh all the poultry <laughs> they want to eat you know that's great news And we also, Delaney, I'm excited. We also had some other good news uh, from a U.S. ag perspective out of Washington, D.C. The House of Representatives passed the, and this is one of those things that, uh, I don't know why they've got to be so cute with this. So the House passed a bill, and it's called the Honest and Open New EPA Science Treatment Act of 2017. Now, if you were taking notes and you wrote down all those letters, you would notice that it spells honest. H O N E S T. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Folks, we're not paying you to be cute. Just write legislation.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say if we're if they're wasting their time trying to figure out the perfect acronym, they're probably not doing what we need them to do in Washington. Yeah,
0: exactly. Let's let's redefine our priorities here. Um, but this piece of legislation does sound like it could be probably pretty beneficial for agriculture as it relates to the EPE EPA. Essentially, they are going to okay here's the text because this gets so confusing here's the text this bill prohibits the environmental protection agency from proposing finalizing or disseminating a covered action unless all scientific and technical information relied on to support such action is the best available science publicly available and reproducible so that's what's good it's basically saying all right epa can do things but if you're going to do something make an action at a regulatory uh, event You have to be able to show us what science is backing it up, and we have to be able to reproduce that science to ensure it's legitimate. So probably Mm -hmm. beneficial for ag in the long run.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it.
0: Yeah, now it's headed to the Senate, so we'll see what happens.
1: Who knows? That's just where things go to die, it seems like, lately.
0: Yeah, it does. Seems like it for the past, uh, gosh, you know, eight, ten years, I suppose. Yeah. Delaney, we have a pretty good interview scheduled uh, for today, don't we?
1: We do. We have Robert White. He's with the RFA, the Renewable Fuels Association, and he's going to talk to us about a lot of different things, really. What to expect with this new administration, where ethanol is headed, um, just all sorts of good things. But before we get to that, Mike, why don't you read us today's closing market?
0: I would be happy to, you know, it's, uh, not a tremendous day in the markets. Let's take a look at the corn market. Corn closed down today, four and three quarter cents, ended at 363 even. December corn closed down four and a quarter at 387 and three quarters. In the soybean pit, they were up today until about the final two minutes of trading. May beans finished down half a penny at 937 and three quarters. November beans down one and a quarter at 949 even. On the wheat side, may wheat down three quarters of a cent at 427 even, D sweet up a half at 475 even. Jumping over on the livestock side, boy, there's a lot of red on the screen here in cattle and hogs. June live cattle closed the day down a dollar forty at 109.30. August live cattle down a dollar twenty-seven and a half closed at 105.52 In feeder cattle, April feeders down two dollars and a nickel closed at 131. Zero two and a half, May feeders down a dollar fifty, closed at one thirty thirty, and August feeders down a dollar twenty two and a half, ended the day at one thirty two twelve and a half cents. Ugh. Over in Lean Hogs cash market was under pressure today. That was reflected in the futures. Cash hogs, excuse me, April lean hogs closed down on the board down a dollar twelve and a half cents closed at sixty three sixty seven and a half May lean hogs down a dollar twenty two and a half closed at sixty eight seventeen and a half, just a lot of red on the screen today, Delaney,
1: yeah, it seems like we're still um feeling a lot of the influence from friday's Corley grain and stocks report,
0: yeah, it does, and I was thinking i've been watching the soybean trade all day, and we were up anywhere from. Oh, gosh, even to up one and a half, two cents a bushel. And then just finally, literally at the final two minutes of of trading, final minute of trading, Mm -hmm. gave it all back and and ended up down on the day. So hopefully this is a sign that maybe we're finding a bottom. We're beginning to see more buyers step into that market. And uh, at least it wasn't a 7, 10 or 15 cent down in beans. Right, right, yeah. And, you know, on the corn side, we got to continue to find demand. We got to continue to uh, get folks to use this product. And, Delaney, as you mentioned, one of the industries that does a great job of using corn is ethanol. So let's go ahead and hear what Robert White has to say about ethanol going forward. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We are here with Robert White. He is the Vice President of Industry Relations with RFA. And, Robert, you get to travel quite a little bit and work with different groups. Tell us from your ground-level perspective, what is happening in the ethanol industry? How do things look?
2: Well, the past year was an interesting one. It was uh, profitable. It was record production. It was record exports. And overall, a very good year for ethanol. While some parts of agriculture were not enjoying uh, such a great year, uh, ethanol helped carry some of that burden. Uh, but we uh, had didn't see it quite the great year that we saw in 2014, but nonetheless, all categories were up. And we're very excited for 2017, both with the increased volumes within the renewable fuel standard, uh, increased work on exports, both of ethanol and distillers grains, and overall working more with agriculture to uh, help raise grain prices if we can and those and across the board.
0: You bet. We need to be able to chew through with this massive corn stockpile that we have. Now, Robert, with profitability, are we to a point that we're seeing new ethanol plants under construction or expansions of existing plants?
2: Well, we're definitely seeing more on the expansion side. There are a couple projects that are trying to get off the ground to build new facilities, but Really, the expansion in production and uh, opportunity has come from the bottlenecking uh, through, you know, some of these plants are, you know, 10, 20, and well over 30 years, depending on which facility you're looking at. And they've incorporated new technology over the years to not only reduce their energy needs or their water needs, but at the same time, what technology opportunities are there so we can produce corn oil, renewable diesel, biodiesel, uh corn fiber uh, just different opportunities that we didn't have uh say 15 years ago when all we produced was ethanol distillers grains and CO2 there's several co-products if you will now to help diversify the uh, product stream of the ethanol biorefineries is probably a better word than plant, and give them more opportunity to balance uh those books across across the board as you know all these commodities value or vary in value.
1: Now you mentioned biodiesel, ethanol, a couple other products, but what does RFA incorporate or capture?
2: Well, we're focused solely on the ethanol and the co-products of it. Uh, biodiesel is and renewable diesel are, are definitely a new one from the past. I would say 12 months now from the ethanol industry, uh, our sister organization, National Biodiesel Board. Uh, definitely handles that well, and we leave that to them. Uh, but it's it's an important uh, component of the biofuels industry as you're seeing kind of the cross-pollination of the corn ethanol facilities be able to make these other fuels.
0: Now, Robert, one of the things that we heard a lot about uh, the past two years is the blend wall, the idea that uh, we have to change the renewable fuel standard because we're running into this blend wall Talk to us a little bit about what the blend wall is, or what people meant when they talked about it, and where do we stand today with regard to consumption?
2: Well, the blend wall is, is you know, a, a, a slogan or term that was built by the ethanol opponents, and essentially what they what their goal is is to change the rhetoric around an idea that. The retail infrastructure at the gas station, the infrastructure at the fuel terminals and that they can not do more than a 10% ethanol. Well, we've seen since, you know, late 1997, this invention of the flex fuel vehicle and then the availability of E85 at, uh, local gas stations. And then of course in 2012, we had the approval of V15 all opportunities to get you above a 10% level. And in fact, what's been interesting that the past couple of years as 2014 and 2015 usage data came in from uh, EIA and Department of Energy is that half the country's states were already breaking the blend wall and had an overall blend rate above 10%. So I think the blend wall uh, conversation will continue to be there, but the reality is Uh, Even without the RFS doing it, we've seen several states, in fact, over half the states, uh, break through that blend wall and have an overall concentration well above 10 percent ethanol.
1: That's interesting. So switching tracks here a little bit with policy, obviously a big issue right now for the biofuels industry. What do you see being one of the biggest challenges this year or during President Trump's administration for biofuel, more specifically ethanol?
2: Well, i think the renewable fuel standard or rfs continues to be number one priority as far as policy is concerned and you have that is a statute so that that's the great part and the inability of washington to get much done has probably benefited the rfs over the years when the votes may or may not have been there to make changes whether that would be a repeal or a simple adjustment uh, but there are plenty of ideas of uh, from the ethanol opponents on what can and should and uh, be done to the RFS. But so far, there's never, never been a vote hit the floor on, on the Senate as an example. And we got to continue to rally our champions and friends within Congress to make sure the damage to the RFS is non existent or at least minimal. Uh, beyond that, we continue to push for uh, a very complicated issue to explain, but volatility parity with E15 and E10 during the summer months. Uh, When EPA approved E15, they, for various reasons that uh, all lack logic, uh, made E15 and E10 have different volatility, fuel volatility requirements during the summer volatility season, which is June 1 through September 15th. Uh, For now five years, we've uh, shown EPA where the authority is to make that adjustment but they've been slowly dragging their feet but it continues to be the number one hurdle holding a b15 expansion across the country now so those those two items are definitely the most important all
0: right robert you touched on something that got a lot of press here oh gosh two three weeks ago we had the uh rfa was brought into the news after bob Deneen received a call from the trump administration about trade-offs with the uh oh gosh help me out what was the point of uh origination point of obligation point of obligation thank you changing that in exchange for a reduction of the rvp the reed vapor pressure during the summer months okay it seems as if the point of obligation thing is in the rearview mirror the rvp issue what is it and why does it matter to ethanol
2: well so the environmental protection agency or epa governs fuel volatility during what they call the summer ozone or summer volatility season, which runs June 1st through September 15th. So the federal government steps into all these states and says, we are going to make sure during these three and a half months that the fuel is, is how we want it to be. Uh, it's very, very close to what most states want anyway, but uh, regardless EPA steps in those three and a half months and for E10 or blends up to 10% ethanol, there's been a one-pound RVP, read vapor pressure waiver, on the books for more than two decades. So if you put in ethanol to gasoline, it would get a waiver in volatility for those three-and-a-half months. And essentially they weighed the benefits of ethanol in the gasoline was more than the penalty of another pound of volatility.
0: Now, the volatility but is basically approach- the rate at which – the gasoline evaporates into the atmosphere. is that what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, we're talking about the uh, the pressure, if you will, of that fuel and it, it can play a part both in fueling itself, but more so it is the uh, it is all of the emissions, including uh, tailpipe greenhouse gas it, it's it really factors into the fuel quality, if you will, of the blender of the, you know, gallon of fuel. Gotcha. But when you have E15 approved in July of 2000, or excuse me, June of 2012, they did not grant E15 that waiver. And so suddenly uh, September 16 through May 31st, E10 and E15 are the same or treated the same then June 1, suddenly E15 has to be one pound lighter on volatility. And the only places in the country that have that ability and have that gasoline blend stock available are the reformulated gasoline markets, which does constitute about 30% of our fuel market. But as you can imagine, that puts a strong uh, opposition to major chains, in many cases adopting it, because they don't want to get into a fuel that they can – they can't offer three and a half months a year. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's it seems so logical when you look at it because E15, if it's compared side by side with E10, it is a better fuel and a lower volatility fuel. So you, ha- we have gone to EPA in numerous ways and a legal approach and a technical approach and said, look, we don't care how you do it. So if, if you remove the one-pound waiver from E10 and please the environmentalist, we're with you. If you extend the one-pound waiver to E15 and make friends with the oil companies, we're with you. We don't care. But the science is there through in and, and throughout that the two fuels should be treated identical, and that's the move that EPA needs to make. Gotcha.
1: Hmm. So I was reading an article earlier this morning, and it was talking about CAFE and then GHG, so Corporate Average Fuel Economy and Greenhouse Gas Rules. And it was saying that specifically the ethanol trade groups were hoping for a deeper review here with President Trump. So is that part of the issues that they're hoping to review?
2: Uh, Well, that's kind of a separate issue, but it's an important one because – when I, I, I've lost track of the year already, but you had the automotive exec stand in the Rose Garden at the White House and agree to 54 and miles per gallon by 2025 as a overall corporate average fuel economy for the U.S. fleet, at least a new fleet. And at that time, there there wasn't even one vehicle on the market that you could buy that could get 54 and miles per gallon. So they went back to their respective uh, engineers, and I'm sure that conversation was colorful, to say the least, but what just happened was a midterm evaluation. So we're, we're part of the way through this evolution to 54.5 miles per gallon. Um, how how are we doing? Do we still have that ability to hit that mark? Or are, are electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging stations expanding like we planned is... You know, are, are the automakers making stronger strides go from larger engines to smaller engines and using gas-sipping technology to minimize the fuel demand? All this was to be evaluated, and EPA just did it overnight, and it was in a very short window. It was more like three months, but most people thought this would take months and months and months, and the evaluation would uh, do a much deeper dive than it did, and essentially EPA's Determination was everything's fine, and this shouldn't be a problem. Well, you'd be hard pressed to find someone outside of the agency that would agree with that. Yeah, I and mean, we saw mm-hmm. uh, lower gas prices lead to um, a reverse in consumer pattern, consumer behavior when buying vehicles. I mean, last year was the first time since the late seventies that the average fuel economy of new vehicles went backwards. Yeah, we mm-hmm. we just we are we can't be tricked right I mean the consumer if if they see fuel econ- or fuel price go down whether it was even close to where it was in the past that's good news and I don't have to worry about fuel economy and that's why you know some of the larger SUV manufacturers couldn't build enough of them I mean they they went up even more in price because they were in high demand and you've seen uh, the interest in electric vehicles and the you know the the roller skates, I call them the little cars, uh, you know, the the interest continues to dwindle um, a little more. And I think that it all goes back to this all has to be considered in that midterm evaluation. And part of that and why the biofuels and ethanol specifically are interested in a deeper dive is that we have some unique opportunities here with ethanol being 113 octane, cleanest octane on the planet, still the cheapest octane on the planet, if the automakers are really going to make a move to downsize engines and need a new, quote-unquote, regular unleaded, the science starts to point to, could this be an E20? Could this be an E25, E30? Whatever the magic number is that the automakers need, we think we have a, a place there, and we think the EPA has, has not taken that into full consideration.
0: Well, now that leads right to my next question. Sorry, Delaney, did you have another follow-up?
1: Oh, well, you might might be thinking the same thing I am, so I'll let you go ahead.
0: Okay, well, I was going to talk about, uh, we have an analyst on Market to Market, and his name is Ted Seifert, and he works for Zaner Ag Hedge, and Ted is a car guy. He bought a... Oh, uh, I know Ted. Okay, all right, so you've heard from Ted, you know his thought then, that... He bought his uh, Cadillac CTSV, spent 1800 bucks, had it optimized and tuned to burn E85, and he gets, you know, the, the mileage ding that he gets burning E85 is more than made up by the price difference, and he gets that performance of that super high octane, although with E85, can we call it octane? Does it? No, it doesn't yeah, get.
2: Yeah, I mean, E85, E85 usually has, the octane and fuel economy in traditional engines are are somewhat separated. Um, but, you know, E85 probably averages about 98 octane.
0: Right. So he gets that high-performance fuel at a, you know, a fraction of the price of burning 93 or 97 octane unleaded. His theory is we need to encourage particularly American car makers to add this as a performance option on their high-end vehicles the capacity to burn E85. Is that realistic in your talks to car makers and uh, that kind of thing?
2: Well, we're, we're trying to get, I guess the answer is yes and no. We're, we're trying to get somewhere in the middle. So imagine, let's say in in 10 years that you go to a new car dealer, doesn't matter the, the maker model. And it is optimized to a new unleaded fuel. So at the pump, you know, kind of like the unleaded or leaded unleaded phase. So you have a new fuel and the new vehicles require it. And it's say E25, 25% ethanol. It's 10 to 15 cents cheaper than 87 octane, maybe more. And yet you get better fuel economy because the engines are, are optimized for that. I mean, what we see with flex fuel vehicles today is they are gasoline engines. Designed for 87 octane, that are allowed to use E85. It's not an optimization in any sense of the word beyond 10% ethanol. In fact, it's not even 10% ethanol. It's regular unleaded gasoline without ethanol. So, if we can get to a point where we make those steps, as Ted suggests, you know, but we're looking at capturing all the vehicles versus just the high-end ones gotcha and that would lead to you know if, if you got the fleet to to make that switch over you could easily see a large expansion in you know ethanol production and demand and that's that's really what we're after
0: and so really we'd be going to a higher compression engine correct because ethanol burns cooler so you can yep. burn it at a greater compression
2: not right yeah it's it's higher higher compression downsized engines so instead of a four liter it's a two liter uh turbochargers uh, uh active fuel management direct injection i mean there's just a laundry list of technologies that they can use all with the same uh, goal in the end and it's to boost fuel economy but we have a, a an approach that gets you a better fuel economy but it's cheaper than it is today and that the fuel's cheaper than it is today and that's that's a unique thing that rarely comes about that way
0: yes it is well robert i want to thank you so much we want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and uh, do you have any parting thoughts before we let you go
2: well there was one little nugget last week that if you haven't seen i think it's very important as a as a veteran myself uh department of energy released their a report or study, if you will, and they went through all the energy sectors. And the cool story out of that was of all the energy jobs and sectors out there, the ethanol industry employs the most U.S. veterans. That's- yes, that. And I, saw I was that. pretty proud yeah. of that. It was uh, just about, just shy of one in, one in five, so we're pretty proud of
0: that. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense, given the rural location of a lot of ethanol plants and the fact that mm-hmm. rural America does volunteer more than any other group to serve to defend this country. It makes sense that ethanol is a leading employer.
2: Absolutely. And the other aspect for, for many of us is that we we live that world where we protect our oil supply lines and some of us have just grown very tired of that so if we can work in a industry that helps offset that demand then even better for you know the future servicemen and women
0: you bet well robert thank you once again for taking the time to join us and we wish you safe travels as you get out there and continue to do the work getting ethanol into more gas tanks
2: thank you happy to do this anytime
0: Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You know, Delaney, I learned a whole lot about ethanol, uh, really just from that conversation, that RVP thing, that vapor pressure. Uh, I'm still not entirely sure I get it, but uh, hopefully we can make some headway there and make E15 available year round.
1: Yeah, I I didn't realize how complex of a process and really how many intricate pieces went into all the pieces to the ethanol and biofuels industry. So that that was pretty interesting to me.
0: Yeah, and uh, hopefully as things change, as we get, uh, you know, more confirmation with the EPA and how things are going to settle out, we can have Robert back on and um, get a better picture of what the industry is going to look like.
1: Yes, I agree. I think that would be a great idea. But uh, Mike, what do we have going on the rest of the week? Is it a surprise again or do you have some things lined up?
0: You know, I've got a lot of things lined up, Delaney, but I'm, I'm going to choose to surprise our listeners, <laughs> but I do think it will be worth tuning in for.
1: Good. That sounds good. Well, thank you all for listening, and if you haven't subscribed to us in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure and do that and rate and review us. We like your comments. We like to hear what you're interested in, maybe what you didn't like as much, and tell us where you want us to take this podcast. So until tomorrow.